You know, as a child of the late 70s, born in 1977, there are a few events that have occurred that mark my life. And one of those what came at the close of the 1980s. Of a different generation, if you use the term the president, like with my grandparents, they think immediately of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When someone says the president to me, I think of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was, and is to me, in my lifetime, the greatest president. There's a lot of reasons for that. You buy me a cup of coffee and I'll give you a list. But I think one of the things that made him great was he understood that the world was on the brink and many around him understood the world was on the brink. And what it was on the brink of was annihilation. Two forces had pitted themselves against one another after World War II. From the earliest days, our generals on the front lines knew they had defeated one of the greatest enemies in world history, the Axis powers, only because they got in bed with maybe a greater enemy, the Soviet Union. Our general standing at the line was staring down the generals from the Soviet Union when questioned what he was looking so hard at. He said, I'm staring at my enemies. It was an uneasy time in world history, to say the least. Many of you lived through the aftermath of World War II, which built into what we call the Cold War. A wall was erected across Europe, dividing the East from the West. It went right through the city of Berlin. It was the tantamount to the separation. It, it was the symbol of the separation. It marked clearly the line which no one should cross. And many tried to cross the line and died. It was a line in the sand, but only greater. And in the late 1980s, one of the greatest speeches by any president was the speech in which Ronald Reagan said, Tear down this wall. And in doing that, he and the leader of the Soviet Union set into motion what might be the greatest human peace in my time. But it wasn't a perfect peace. Matter of fact, and I'm not beating up on anybody. <laughs> Matter of fact, if I sat down with some of you even now, the peace that was struck on the surface is not at peace in your heart, really. There's still a lot of fears about the people who lived on the other side of that wall. Some of them rightly placed fears. It wasn't a perfect peace. Like all human pieces, peace compacts, it had limits. But today I want to talk to you about a peace that doesn't have any limit. It is the shalom which only God can bring. And He brought it through sending Himself, His Son, Jesus Christ. It was a peace that needed to be brought because this divide was greater than the divide between East and West in Europe. This divide 
had existed for century and millennia. The divide known as the Jew-Gentile divide. And it too had a barricade. This wall of separation was real. And it ran deep. And the background here is that kind of separation. And then we look in Ephesians chapter 2 and we find, as we saw last week, that Paul wants to teach about this separation. And what he's going to say is that there's marvelous unity in the body of Christ. The overarching word for the church in this letter is the thought of a body, much like it is in 1 Corinthians 12. A body, much like it is in Romans 12. He, he understands the church as a body. And I just want to ask you a question. If a body is divided against itself, how will that body live? Or in Jesus' words, if a house is divided against itself, how will that house stand? Paul takes seriously this separation and what we should be thinking about in these times is that this separation has now been brought into unity in the marvelous unity of Christ's body. The new man is unified by Christ's peace. That's the subject of verses 14 through 18, which is the centerpiece of this paragraph, which is the centerpiece, chapter 2, of the whole letter of Ephesians. And so we see in verse 11 last week, we talked about that He is calling them to remember. Remember that you were once Gentiles in, as Gentiles in the flesh, uncircumcision. You were uncircumcised. Paul, Paul's point is that you were called uncircumcision by what is the so-called circumcision. That which is done with the hands. The word here, by human hands. You see it. Uh, translate if you made in the flesh by hands. The word here is so specific. It's only used to differentiate between the work of a man and the work of God. So what Paul is accusing the Jews of is doing the work of their own nation, not the work of God when they circumcised their children. They weren't following the very precepts of the law which they claimed they loved so much and which they erected a pillar of separation over. Paul's saying, you're doing this work through your own power and through human hands, not by the hands of God. So you're uncircumcised Gentiles. Not only are they uncircumcised, they're unprivileged. And he lays that out for us again by saying, remember that you were separate from, separated from Christ or the Messiah. Last week we made clear that that is not meaning that they didn't, that, that they, the Jews were not separate from Christ. The Jews not having faith in Christ were separated. But this is a further separation. Not only are you not in Christ, he's saying, you're not in Christ, but that might be said about hundreds and thousands of Jewish people in Paul's day. What he's saying is you're not only separated from Christ this way, but physically separated from Christ. You don't even know of a Messiah before you came to Christ, before you were grafted in. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You, Though you were a member of Rome's citizenship, you were not a citizen of heaven. You had no people. 
You were strangers of the covenant of promise. The covenants of promise rooted in the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and formulated in a covenant in Genesis 15. You Gentiles weren't part of that covenant. God made that covenant with Abraham and with his descendant, with his offspring, Jesus Christ. And so now we know that you were without hope and you were without God in the world. They were strangers to all these things. They were separate. They were alien. They were cut off from God. And now he moves down to this second set of verses. And it's introduced by verse 13. 13 correlates with verse 4 earlier in the chapter. He gave the details of our pre-existence before Christ. How awful it was. And then he said, but God... In our text, he gives what it was like to be a Gentile outside of Christ, outside of the hope of a Messiah, outside of the commonwealth of Israel, outside of the covenant of promise. You're outside of hope and you're outside of God, but it's just that big of a but. Like that one in verse 4. But now in Christ Jesus, You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off. And He came and preached peace to you who are near. For through Him, we have both have access, both Jews and Gentiles have access in one Spirit to the Father. To Paul, it is just as insane for you to say that your left side of your body is at war with your right side of your body. That the two have completely different entities and beings. It's that crazy to him that you would say Jews and Gentiles are separated in the body of Christ. No. It can't stand. That body would die. No. That house would fall. God's not constructing a house that will fall. He's constructing a house that will live for all of eternity. He's making a body that is quickened by His Spirit. And He has brought them together in His flesh through the cross. And so we want to break this down. We want to make this plain. What has Christ done? That's the subject of the first 13 and 14. What has Christ done? Well, look at what it says in verse 13. Now... This is in contrast to what they were to remember. You're to remember who you were before Christ, but now in Christ. He's he's separating. He's showing a, a difference. You existed as Gentiles in the flesh, separate from Christ, Israel, the covenants, hope, God, commonwealth. All that was cut off, but now in Christ. It's that marked in the Greek. He's changing it now. He's saying, you're not any longer cut off. You're not any longer outside of Israel. You're not any longer outside of the covenant. You're not any longer without hope. You're not any longer without God. Why? Because you're in Christ. You're in Christ. 
He's contrasting it. He's saying apart from Christ you were cut off, but in Christ you've been brought near. And the geographical separation that existed, the wall which was up between the court of Gentiles and the court of the Israel of the court of the women of Israel, it 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 is only a spatial, it's only a um, a geographic separation to show the deeper separation that existed. The the land promise which God gave was geographic. So that the people would know we are different, we are distinct from the other nations of the world. But why was He making them distinct? We're going to answer that question in the weeks to come. But I want to answer it quickly and shortly and then I'll have to support it, I know. He did that. He made them distinct only to make the Gentiles desire to come in. So that He might distinguish His Son from all the rest of the world. And then He might draw Jews and Gentiles together. He didn't make them distinct so they would put up a stinking wall between the two groups and keep them distinct. He made them distinct to say, you're different. You're not like the world. So the world would then look at them and say, I want that. How did they get that? And then they would come into Christ. That was the purpose. That's why He made them distinct. God is set up the promised land like a bowl of honey so that all the world might come to the honey. He's drawing a bear to the trap. That's the beauty of Christ. Christ is exalted in this passage. He's placed high above Jew and Gentile distinctions saying God has made in Himself one man, one new man. Now let's look at that. Let's look at how He brought us near. He brought us near how? He brought us near... By His blood. He couldn't bring us near any other way. You Gentiles and you Jews who are in Christ are only able to come to God by Christ's life. We sang about the blood. We talk about the blood. Let me tell you, the blood represents life. God had to give His life in Christ for us. To bring us to God. So, how did He bring us near? How did He bring the... uh, 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 Who brought us near, we might say? What brought us near? Christ did. How did He do it? He did it through His giving of His life. For He Himself is our peace. Notice it's not here some kind of worldly peace. It's His peace. He is peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 His name shall be called the Prince of Peace. Jesus, in John 14, having the night of His his arrest and trial and then crucifixion, said to them, My peace I leave with you. Not peace that is from the world, but it's My peace. Not a surface peace which Ronald Reagan is able to strike with the Soviet Union, but deep spiritual peace. And it's a peace that exists between God and those who are in Christ and between those who are in Christ to one another. It's real peace. He said in the end of that speech in John 16, verse 33, I'm leaving you in the world, but I'm leaving you with my peace and have no fear because I have overcome the world. 
So His peace is not the world's peace. We're not talking about a surface peace. We're talking about a true, deep peace. William Barclay says this, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that He had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. They weren't even allowed to deliver a Gentile child. That's how much contempt they had. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of the Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. How deep was the separation? If you married a Jew, I mean, if a Jew married a Gentile, the family had a mock funeral. They mourned you as cut off and dead. That's a real separation. And what I'm saying to you is the Prince of Peace brought an end to that separation. He brought an end to it at a deep level for those in Christ. We must move carefully here. He did not bring it for all Jews and all Gentiles. He brought it for the Jews and Gentiles in Christ. And we pick this up in the letter to Diosthenes, written by Clement of Rome, who was a student of the Apostle Paul. Being questioned about this new man, the church, he said, O Diosthenes, it's my desire that you understand that we have three classes of men in the world. We have the Jews, we have the Gentiles, and we have the church. Both Jew and Gentile in Christ. What Paul's saying here, his student Clement understood fully. Jesus came and put an end to the hostility for everyone in Christ. He did away with the separation for those in Christ. He did not make Jews Gentiles. He did not make Gentiles Jews. He made both Jews and Gentiles Christian. A new class. A separate people. Called out from among the nations. Listen closely. As Peter says, to be holy as God is holy. The same words he thundered over Israel in Exodus 19. Israel, the physical people. You're to come out from among the people and you're to be holy as I am holy. Peter quotes it. For the church, for the Christians, for this new class. And so Paul is saying, God, through Christ, has broken down this separation. He Himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. He's not bringing a peace. He is peace. He has broken down the barrier wall. He has broken down enmity. That's what he says next. Look what it says here. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The debate rages over what this means. The dividing wall. Is it that baluster I was describing? Is it the law of Moses? What is it? I would say it's both. Not one, but both. 
Because the physical brick and mortar wall only is there because of the deeper spiritual wall. The wall of Moses. This double alienation of the Gentiles from God and from the Jews was symbolized by the middle wall of partition. The dividing wall of hostility. The barrier of the dividing wall, according to the NASB. Translation options vary. You can call it a lot of things. Some argue that it refers literally to the temple and its wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the court of Jews. So what Jesus did was He tore that down. Herod's temple is what we're talking about. And Herod is the one who accentuated the separation. He didn't like the temple built by Nehemiah. He wanted a better temple. So he built this entrenched wall to separate the two communities. And some believe that that's what he's doing. He's tearing down that wall. Josephus described this barricade in his antiquities. He writes this, Encompassed by a stone wall for a partition with an inscription which forbade any foreigner to go in under penalty of death. The partition was made of stone all around, whose height was three cubits. Its construction was very elegant. Upon it stood pillars at equal distance from one another, declaring the law of purity, some in Greek, some in Roman letters, that no foreigner should go into the sanctuary. No foreigner may pass here, may enter within the barrier enclosed around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so has his own death on his own head. So there was this wall, a dividing wall, a physical wall. But then there's a second idea here, I think. The second idea is that Paul is talking about the Mosaic law. If you look, he says, by abolishing the law of, and look what he says, he very specifically calls it commandments expressed in ceremonial ordinances. Okay? The law of Moses Commandments and ordinances. And Jesus does away with it. All the rituals that they were to go through, purification, sacrifices, all of the dress code, the cutting of the hair, the shaving of the beard, all of those things, Christ did away with it. That no longer marks you as the people of God. That's gone. And what's upheld is the moral revelation of God. The Mosaic or the Sinaitic covenant is ceased. Why? Because it was made between God and Israel and they failed. God didn't fail, they failed. So it is set aside. And a new covenant is made in Christ. And who is this between? It is between God and His people, Jew and Gentile, who have been brought close and near and unified in His body. Now you might bring up the text and say, Jesus said He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And it's true. He did fulfill the law. He even fulfilled the ceremonial law. But what He left in place and what you will see repeated throughout the epistles of the New Testament is the moral law of God. That's what you see repeated once and again. According to my view or this view, the Mosaic Law was a sign of Jewish particularism. Created, it created a fence around Israel. It was necessary so that we had two groups 
Jews and Gentiles, those of the promise, those without the promise, those who have God, those who don't have God. But that now is obsolete. It's worn out. It's gone. Why? Because we have Christ who is the peace of the new covenant. And in Him, Jews and Gentiles don't observe ceremonial law. We observe the law of God, the pure law of God, the moral law. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. He is our head who has united us all in His body. And so the, the social, religious particularism is gone. This contributed to the deep-seated hostility between the two groups, this ceremonial law. The law which forbade eating or intermarrying with Gentiles often led Jews to have a contempt for Gentiles without regard. Less, they thought of them less than human. In response, Gentiles would often regard Jews with great suspicion considering them inhospitable and hateful to non-Jews. So they hated them. So the hatred was on both sides. And what Jesus has done is He's come in and done away with the wall, not just the physical wall in the temple, but the wall of ceremony which separated, which fenced in the people of Israel as separate from the world. He did away with it without doing away with it. This is where it's so hard. Because the Jews continue, and some continue to this day, to practice separation rituals. Most of it dies in AD 70, because the temple's gone. But there is a sect of Jews still practicing ceremonial, ritual, religious, political separation. Community separation. And so it gets confusing, because we say, well, they're still doing it. So how did he break it down? Remember my quote from Clement. He did not make Jews Gentiles, and He did not make Gentiles Jews. He made one new man. He did not bring peace to all Gentiles towards the Jews. The Gentiles still hate the Jews. He did not bring all the Jews into peace with all the Gentiles. The Jews still hate the Gentiles. They're still shooting one another. He took from among Jews and Gentiles people a remnant, and made them one in His body. You see that? So when we talk about this, we're not saying that the distinction is gone from the world. We're saying the distinction is gone from the body of Christ. It's gone from the church. And it is gone forever. How has He done it? He did it through His flesh. If you look, it says He took and made one new man in place of the two. And He did it in His flesh. He came... And preach the peace to you who are far off. And to those who are near. He, he, he preached peace himself. He came saying, I am, I've, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. He came preaching to the Gentiles and preaching to the Jews. He came preaching peace physically. He did it. He also came and preached peace through His cross. Peace with God. Which is the underlying peace which allows the peace between Jews and Gentiles. The peace with God. And He preached peace with God through His resurrection. So He preached peace in His earthly ministry. He preached peace in His death. He preached peace in His resurrection. And He preached peace in His ascension. To the right hand of God. To the throne where He is now ruling and reigning. He preached peace Himself. How did He do it? Through His cross. 
resurrection, ascension. This is how He did it. The message He proclaimed was that those who are far away and those who are near, both Jews and Gentiles, have come by the gospel of peace. And in Ephesians 6, He calls it the gospel of peace. Now, it's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, Paul quotes a text. The far and near text is not new. The Jews in the audience would have recognized it. It's Isaiah 57 verse 19. It's interesting. Why? Because it was spoken to the two groups of Jews in the world. It was spoken to the far off Jews in the exile and the near Jews who lived in Jerusalem. Just how deep does he see this combination, this bringing together, this peace of Christ which rules and reigns in the church? Just how deep is it? It's so deep that he quotes a text which was written originally for Jews that were in exile and Jews who were in the homeland. And now he changes it and writes it as a message to Gentiles and Jews. Isaiah 57, verse 19. Sorry, verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will hear him, heal him. I can only imagine the Jewish shock and awe that occurred when he said he has come and preached peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles, and those who are near, the Jews, they, I'm sure they want to say, time out, stop. Isaiah was talking about Jews and Jews. You can't do that. And you can. You can and he did. How can you? Because the promises made were made to Jesus Christ through his father Abraham. And now as the inheritor of all the promises of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ then pours out the blessings on whom He wills. Who does He pour the blessings out on? Who does He give the fulfillment of those promises to? He gives it to the church. Look at verse 18. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. I'm inadequate to this text. I've uh, had a lot of fear about it all week. It's a very difficult text to preach. It's a very difficult text to get to you in your words, in your language. But let me do my best. I've said all I've said to say this. If you are in Christ, you have peace with God. God was your enemy and you were His enemy. Romans 5 says, When you were yet the enemy of God, Christ died for you. So He made peace in His body with God on your behalf. Before you asked Him, before you believed in Him, before you did anything to merit salvation, Jesus Christ in His body died to make you at peace with God. And so you have the greatest war treaty ever 
It's in the signed and sealed covenant between God and His Son. The covenant of redemption. You, if you are in Christ, are at peace with God. So stop fearing Him in the sense of He's going to bring down some type of retribution or condemnation on you. You are at peace with God. And I see that in Matthew's words. When Jesus died on the cross, the stone wall that separated the Jews and Gentiles did not fall. But the curtain of separation was torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was opened to all who believe in Christ. He made peace through His blood with God for you. And if you're outside of Him, you have no peace. You can expect condemnation. You can expect judgment. If you're outside of Him, you need to be in Him. Call on Him. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Treasure Him. Now. Because the day of wrath is now. It's coming. But there's a second greatness to this text. And it's verse 18. Because that horizontal, I mean that uh, perpendicular, that that peace between God and man was then laid down horizontally between the two most bitter rivals in all the world, Jews and Gentiles. He did that in His flesh, on the cross, in His resurrection, in His ascension. And at His ascension, I say that because at His ascension, He seated Himself on the throne, which was promised to Him, and then He did something significant. He poured out the Spirit on His people. And Paul, in Acts 21, says, don't look back, you can read it later, says, in his testimony, I was called, I was a Pharisee, you know who I was, but I was called, and Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles. He took the greatest enemy of the Gentiles, a Pharisee, and He said, your commission in me is to go to them. Why? Because there is no separation in the people of God. We are one. He has not only torn the curtain, He has crushed the wall of separation. He has made peace with God and peace with our fellow man in Him. And so, He did that by giving His one Spirit. That's what's so great about verse 18. And it transitioned us to next week. He gave us His one Spirit. He doesn't have a Spirit for the Jews and a Spirit for the Gentiles. He has the Holy Spirit, which He poured out on both Jew and Gentile who were in Him. So if we have the Spirit of God in us, we return to Jesus' statement, how can the house stand if it's divided Against itself. If you have in your mind two groups of God, two groups of God, you've divided the house. They don't have the same spirit. We have one body and one spirit. And it breaks down even more practical for you. If God has done away with that great separation, between Jew and Gentile, and he asks, and our text says he has, what petty division do you have among yourselves that you don't think God can mend and bring together? 
Jesus Christ is destroyed in His flesh, the separation between God and those who are in Him. And He has has destroyed the separation between Jew and Gentile. And so you're warring with your husband who is in Christ and you're in Christ over some frivolous, and it is frivolous no matter how deep and grave and emotional it may be, it is frivolous in comparison to those two divisions. And you say, God can't overcome that. We're doomed. No. If you're in Christ and He's in Christ, the house is not divided. The Spirit is one. So peace is made. You don't have to make peace. Stop with the make peace stuff. We have peace. So when I'm at war, just for instance, I'm not, but I pick one of my friends, okay? I'm at war with Jason Gilbert. Immediately as a believer, he and I should say, this is frivolous. We're brothers. We have, we have peace. And we should show that unity by the love we have for one another, which Jesus says will set us apart from the world. Stop with the ceremonial stuff. The frivolous external things. Those will come later. We're so busy segmenting ourselves as separatists. Jesus said, forget separatism. Forget ordinances. Forget ceremonial laws. Forget... All of the outward things, I've brought you peace and my spirit is in you. And when you display it to one another, it preaches the gospel to the world. The converse is true. Whenever you set up divisions between you and a brother, or you and a sister, you don't preach the gospel. I don't care what you say with your mouth. So husbands, go home and live in the peace that Christ has brought for you with your wife. Fathers and mothers, live at peace. The peace that God has given you with your children. Friends, stop with the pettiness. You have peace with the Spirit which dwells in both of you. If we would live this way, we would be distinct among all the nations of the world and we would call many to salvation.